Good evening, everybody. Welcome to St. James. It's good to see you guys. Welcome to whoever's watching on the live stream. It's our Monday Thursday service. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Monday is just a fancy word, which comes from a Latin word, which we get the word mandate from. And so this is typically the day when the church thinks about Jesus' mandate in the Gospel of John as he washes his disciples' feet and commands them to love each other as I have loved you. It's also, of course, being the night of the Last Supper. Uh, it's, we think about that as well, which that'll be the focus of the sermon this evening, uh, will be the Last Supper. But make sure you come back tomorrow night. The Good Friday service is kind of, I mean, this is where we've been headed for the past several months, is the service tomorrow night, which if you've never been to a Tenebrae service, um, it's my favorite service of the year. We really kind of uh, uh, sit down and think about the death of Christ. We read the entire passion story from the Gospel of John. So come back tomorrow night uh, for that. And then, of course, uh, Sunday morning, Easter, uh, worship at 9 o'clock. And then at 10.30, we're going to have a breakfast downstairs with um, uh, Easter egg hunt for the kids at 10.30. So join us back for that as well. All right, that's all, all the announcements I have. Let's go ahead and sing the opening hymn.
please stand. Let's continue in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Let's confess our sin to God our Father. Holy and merciful God, in your presence we confess our sinfulness, our shortcomings, and our offenses against you. You alone know how often we have sinned in wandering from your ways, in wasting your gifts, in forgetting your love. Have mercy on us, O Lord, for we are ashamed and sorry for all we have done to displease you. Forgive our sins and help us to live in your light and walk in your ways for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Upon this, your confession, I announce the grace of God to all of you and in the stead and by the command of my Savior, Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. From Psalm 116. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. O Lord, I am your servant. I'm your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. The Old Testament reading is um, from Jeremiah 31. It's the New Covenant text. God promised Abraham that he would rescue the world through Abraham and through Abraham's seed. 450 years later, God calls Moses to lead his people out of Israel and kind of solidifies the people of Israel, not as just sort of amorphous ethnic group, but as a real nation. And um, he gives them a covenant and says, obey these laws and I'll be your God and you'll be my people. But they disobey these laws and so God, they break the covenant that God made with Moses. But God promises, I'm someday going to give you a new covenant to replace that. And Jeremiah says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. 
for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so Jeremiah is, uh, you know, roughly 500 years before Jesus. Here's the writer of Hebrews reflecting on Jeremiah in light of Jesus. He says this. He's talking about the new covenant. He's going to quote our text. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, here's Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the sermon hymn. It's like, oh. 
The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 22. Glory to you, O Lord. This is uh, this, uh, Luke's recounting of the Last Supper. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go, prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. seated. So uh, the sermon text for this evening is the epistle reading. If you could look back there, uh, this is the writer of Hebrews reflecting on um, the new covenant, which of course Jesus talks about in the Lord's Supper. Which, so this is, uh, thinking about the Lord's Supper, there's th three big events in salvation history, as, as it applies to me and you. There's three big events that you can think of um, in the Bible. You, you know how in every story, there's lots of events, but there's sometimes there are big, super important events. And uh, the first one is the story of the Exodus. And if you were here last Sunday afternoon where we did the Passover Seder with Pastor Kevin from Akiva Shalom, uh, this will help actually, you know, there's a reason why Jesus intentionally makes his move, goes to Jerusalem, cleanses the temple, does the triumphal entry. He does that during Passover week. Because he's definitely trying to tie what he's doing in with 
the first great redemptive event in the story of the Bible. Passover leads up to Holy Week and Jesus' death on the cross and, and resurrection, which we'll talk about on Sunday. But then, so these are the two big events in the Bible. There's, these are the two big ones. And, but but the, the, the follow-up question is, what does this have to do with us? There's another third of big event that we need to talk about, which is, how do you guys, how do we become Christians? What is the Passover and what is the Last Supper and Jesus' death and resurrection? What is that, how does that get to us right now? Is it just something that we reflect on? And somehow there's this magical connection by thinking about these things that somehow it joins up in our head? Or what's the connection? That's what I want to talk about briefly tonight. So these three big events, and um, you know, uh, the Old Testament reading alludes to them. It goes back to the covenant that God made with you when Moses was around that you broke. It points forward to the new covenant that God's going to make. Jesus points backwards in the Lord's Supper by having the Lord's Supper at Passover. He also says, now's the time. This is the blood of the new covenant for you. And then the writer of Hebrews reflects on both of these events as well and asks, what do they have to do with us? So first of all, let's look at the first big redemptive event in the book of Exodus. Now, in the story of the book of Exodus, there's a lot of different things that happen. There's, uh, you know, there's uh, the, the um, uh, Pharaoh's command to kill the babies. There's Moses meeting at the burning bush. All these things are super important. Uh, there's uh, Exodus 24, the uh, Mosaic Covenant is ratified. These are all important. But if you had to boil down the book of Exodus to the three main things that happen there, without which nothing else in the Bible makes sense, those three things are, first of all, the Passover, the night when, when God tells his people, go into your house, make yourself some food, take the blood of the animal that you cook and paint it on your doorpost, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you and you will be safe. This is the first big one. The second big one is the crossing of the Red Sea. This is, uh, this is maybe the most important single event in the Old Testament, where God's people, in a matter of moments, go from being slaves to a nation go from being oppressed by a big nation to turning around and seeing that big nation drowned in the Red Sea. And they are free, and they're, the, and they're a nation, a free people. The third big event comes, it's all tied up with this, it comes at the, at the end of the book of Exodus, when God comes down and lives in the tabernacle, which they have made bespoke for him. These are the three big events. And uh, they're all absolutely essential. You know, the, 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 um, the Passover sacrifice tells us that the blood of an innocent creature, can, of, of an innocent being, can be seen by God as sufficient for covering up and paying for guilty people who, who should get killed. It's super important. God defeats the pagans in the waters of the Red Sea and establishes his people as his people. God, so... The tabernacle is all about God coming to live with us. And the whole forgiveness of sins thing, that's what that's about. Do, do you guys know this? Is that God doesn't just forgive your sins so that you'll feel less guilty. Sometimes you feel guilty, but you're still forgiven. God forgives our sins. God forgives his people's sins primarily because he wants to live with us. And he's a holy God. And he can't live with us unless our sins are forgiven. This is not necessarily just about him being nice to us and saying, I, I want you to sleep better at night and not feel so guilty. I'll forgive your sins. Hopefully that's true, 
But the main point is that God wants to live with us and he can't live with sinful people. And so he figures out a way to forgive our sins with the blood of the Paschal Lamb so that he can come and live with us in the tabernacle, which he set up in the middle of the camp. These are huge. And Jesus, of course, does the Lord's Supper on the night of the Passover for the specific reasons that he wants to say that these things are all about to happen now. The things that happened back then in Exodus are true and good, but they're actually just preliminary. They're signposts pointing forward to the real thing which is happening tonight, Jesus says, which is happening this weekend, is that I want to be the Passover lamb. Look at verses 19 and 20 of our reading. Therefore, brothers, the writer of Hebrews says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, the New Testament, not least the book of Hebrews, insist over and over again that the blood of Jesus makes us right with God, that the sacrifice, of, the, the, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is a sign to God that he can pass over us and not judge us for the sins that we deserve to be judged for. We are covered up by his blood. This is a Passover thing. In fact, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul actually just literally calls Jesus our Passover lamb. He just refers to him as the Passover lamb, the lamb who died to pay for us, the lamb who died so that we would not be judged for the sins we deserve to be judged for. Jesus is also, in the, in, in the Last Supper, is creating the new people of God. Jesus also has his own Red Sea event. He also has his own crossing of the Red Sea event. He refers to it a couple times in the New Testament, actually he talks about it several times, but, but, but two big ones are, do you remember, um, we talked about this several months ago, back in February, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John are up there with Jesus, and all of a sudden, Jesus is like shining, brilliant white. And um, Luke says, Peter and James and John, look, and Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah about his exodus, about his exodus. Why does he use that? Why doesn't he say about his coming death? Well, because Jesus' death, Luke is emphasizing this, Jesus emphasizes this too, Jesus' coming death is the exodus. It's the real deal that the crossing of the Red Sea only pointed forwards to. And of course, we're given baptism as a symbol of this. John the Baptist baptizes people in the Jordan River as a way of saying, this is how God's people gets, get going. This is how God starts his people, is by parting waters and delivering through them. Sin is judged. They come out the other side clean and free and belonging to God as new people. Jesus will call what he's about to go through on the cross several times. He calls this a baptism. At one point, do you remember James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come to him and in, in, in one of the Gospels, it's them. In one of the Gospels, it's their mom who says, can, can my sons sit at your right hand? And Jesus says, can they go through the baptism I'm about to go through? He's talking about his death. He refers to that as a baptism. He's about to go through the waters of the Red Sea for us. He's about to establish God's new people for us. Of course, Jesus, also, Jesus is also the new tabernacle. This is one of the main things that Jesus' death means is that now, because Jesus died, we're able to go into the holiest of holy places, a place that, that, that the Old Testament people could never go except for the priest once a year. Writer of Hebrews talks about this a lot. But look down at verse, uh, uh, back at verse 20. Actually, verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, Jesus opens to us the presence of God because Jesus is 
like he says in John 2 and other places. Jesus is the new temple. And if you're with Jesus, you are in the house of God. You are in the presence of God. Jesus' death brings God, God's presence here to us. Jesus' death and resurrection, re resurrection puts us square in the middle of the holiest of holy places. So what does this have to do with us? How does it get from there to here? How does this story of Exodus and redemption and Passover and God's new people and God's new tabernacle get from Exodus to Jesus and then to here? We come together every Sunday, and hopefully you every day reflect on this, that, that, that your primary identity is that you are someone who is in Jesus Christ. But how does that happen? Is it some sort of psychological trick? We know that we're saved by faith. The writer of Hebrews says this. He says it in verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, he uses the word confidence, which is kind of a fancy word for faith, this boldness that we belong with Jesus. Because of Jesus, we are connected. We are God's new people. We are in the presence of God. We have been delivered by God via his Passover lamb, Jesus. He actually uses the word faith down in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. So we know that we're saved by faith. The Bible is clear about this, is that the only way to be connected by God is through Jesus Christ, and the only way to be connected with Jesus Christ is by faith. But how do you get this faith? How do you come to a saving faith? Is this some sort of psychological trick? whereby pondering and thinking about these things and really thinking they're true, there's some sort of weird, mystical connection happening between your soul and the soul of Jesus that somehow connects you to him and, and brings the benefits of salvation from 2,000 years ago in Palestine here to Glen Carbon to where you're sitting in the pew right now? Or is there something less mystical than that? Is there something more concrete is there something else that God has designed to give us faith, something tangible and physical, as physical as the Passover lamb itself, as physical as the blood smeared on the adobe sides of the huts, that they, of the houses that they lived in in Egypt, as real as the meal that they were eating together, Jesus and his disciples, as real as the body of Christ itself hanging from the cross? We need something more real than just this sort of like, well, think about it and really try really hard to believe it. And if you really can believe it, then God will look upon you with favor and say, okay, I'll save you. And in fact, this is what the writer of Hebrews says we get. We get this faith not through some sort of psychological trick, not through some sort of like self-will mastery where we try really, really hard to think it's true, but by God giving us his good gifts objectively and physically. Let us draw near, verse 22 says, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. When I was a Baptist, I would look at that phrase and say, yes, my heart's been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, spiritually, metaphorically. Now, what do I do with this whole body part? Our bodies washed with pure water. Well, the writer of Hebrews is putting the bodies in there in the washing with pure water so that we don't think for a minute that baptism has nothing to do with our salvation, that one of the ways that God grants us faith is by placing upon us his word in the waters of baptism. It's objective. It's real. It happens. And the main thing isn't what you think about it. The main thing is, is that God does it to us. It's objective and it's real. And it connects us to the waters of the Red Sea. It connects us to the waters of the Jordan River that John the Baptist brought Jesus out of. It connects us to this grand story and says, God is putting his mark on you, just like he did to the Israelites. Just like he did to his disciples, God is putting his mark on us. 
but also Holy Communion. Back to verse 20, which we've looked at several times now. Jesus makes a way to us into the holiest place by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Now, of course, this is a reference to the gospel stories. Remember when Jesus dies on the cross, and um, um, several of the gospel writers say that, that the moment that he dies, the veil of the temple is split in two. And I, I used to think, with, sort, without sort of reflecting on it, that the symbol of this was like, now the pathway to God is opened and anybody can come in. Which actually, when you think about it as a Christian, isn't true. The pathway to God has always been there. God always wanted humans to have connection with them. And never at any point in time in the story of the Bible, or since then, I believe, has God ever said, hey, anybody, it's cool, whatever. I'm here, I'm available. Just, uh, I have access to everybody. He's always said there's a specific way and one specific way that you can approach God, and that's the only way. It used to be by the priest going in through this curtain into the Holy of Holies. But now that's been done away with, but the veil is still there. The curtain is still there. Now, though, the writer of Hebrews says the curtain is Jesus himself. Not just Jesus himself in some sort of vague, I ponder the mysteries of Jesus, or that Jesus is this cosmic figure who's out there somewhere. And as I think about Jesus, and as I really give my heart to Jesus, and as I really like pray and trust in him, I have this cosmic connection to Jesus. No, the writer of Hebrews insists that it's the body of Jesus that is the access to God. It's the body of Jesus that's the access to God. And of course, why wouldn't it be? Do I need a cosmic connection to Jesus? When I was a Baptist, I would come to the Holy... I would think some more things about baptism, but um, thinking about communion tonight. I would receive communion, uh, the once a quarter that we were allowed to have communion. I would receive it, and I would think to myself, this is a nice object lesson. This bread and this grape juice is something that helps me think about Jesus. And that's what I need. I need to think about Jesus more. But do I need to think about Jesus more? Does thinking about Jesus, is that what faith is? is? Does my relationship with God happen between my ears? Or do I need something more than that? Is not my body completely messed up? Does not my body sin? Does not my body, is not my body prone to breaking down? Is it not my body that's going to die someday? Did Jesus just come to save my brain or the inside parts of me being more generous? Or did Jesus come to rescue me body and soul? And if Jesus came to rescue me body and soul, then I need his flesh. If his flesh is the only way to get in through the curtain into God, then I need his flesh. And somebody will say, well, yeah, well, his flesh is back there and now his flesh is up there. But Jesus insists, and Paul insists, and all the other writers of the New Testament insist that it's only his flesh. Look, if, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, body and soul, then we are of all people most miserable, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If I come to the rail and it's only my insides that get saved, then I am of all people most miserable. If my relationship with God has nothing to do with the physical world, nothing to do with my body, it's just these sort of thoughts that I think and this intuition I have about the love of God for me and Jesus, or something like that, then I am of all people most miserable. But if I know that God gives himself to me, every part of him, that Jesus, every part of Jesus, has come to fix every part of me, then I am of all people most satisfied. And again, why wouldn't God do this? 
Why wouldn't Jesus rescue us soul and body? I've done this illustration so often that maybe some of you are getting sick of it, but I'm going to keep on circling back to it for the handful of you that haven't heard it before. When, when, when I give one of my kids a hug, I'm telling them that, that I love them. If I don't tell them with my mouth that I love them, but I hug them, I'm a bad father. If I tell them that I love them, but I never hug them, I'm also a bad father. Why is that? Why do they need to know internally that I love them and also feel my arms wrapped around them that I love them? Why is that completely appropriate? Well, the reason why is because they have bodies and souls. That's the way God made them. I have a body and soul. That's the way God made me. God knew this going into the game. God knew at the Garden of Eden that my body and soul, Aaron Miller's body and soul in 2022 in Glen Carbon, was going to need, all of it was going to need rescued. Would not God want to tell me he loves me like he does in his word? Would he also not want to wrap his arms around me physically like he does in the sacrament, knowing that I need him body and soul? This is exactly what we would expect to happen. And when Jesus says, this is my body, he means this is my body. When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? He means that the cup of blessing that we bless is a participation in the blood of Christ. When he says this bread that we bless, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? What gives me the right to say, well, that's just spiritual or metaphor. What gives me the right to water it down, to try to explain it away, to try to say Paul says this, but he doesn't really mean it. He doesn't really know what he's talking about. Paul's a little too crass sometimes. Paul doesn't understand that the physical body's not important, that God really wants to save our minds. He wants to take our souls up to this platonic place in the sky someday. No, far be it from Paul, far be it from me, far be it from you to think that that would be the case. The cup that we bless is a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break is a participation in the body of Christ simply because Jesus came with a body to save your body and he's determined to do it. He's determined to justify you, to sanctify you, to glorify you from beginning to end with his love communicated to you with his word, we get it internally, communicate it to you with his sacraments. We get it externally as well. What's the payout for this? The payout is that this is objective. You're going to come to the rail in a few minutes, and not a single person in this room is worthy to do this. But Jesus is once again going to give himself to me and you. It's objective. It doesn't really matter what you think about it. I mean, God calls us to repent. He calls us to believe in him. The sacraments are powerless to those who don't have faith. In fact, they're damning to those who don't have faith. But you don't have to really try hard to understand it, although it's good if you do. Nobody really does, but if you understand it more and more all the time, you don't really have to have the appropriate sort of like faith level. The important thing is that Jesus is doing it for you, which brings us back to faith. What does this have to do with faith? Well, what's the faith that you've been offering up to God that you think is going to put him in your debt? God, I believe in you, and so you owe me salvation. God, I have faith in your son, Jesus. Therefore, according to the math, that means you have to save me. We've turned, a lot of us Christians all over the place, have turned salvation by faith into some sort of like mental work where I put God in my debt by believing in him. God's not interested in that sort of faith. You can't put God in your debt. You don't come, it's an interesting thing about this, right, is that, let me point this out to you. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, and since we have a great high priest 
over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you see what he says? Did you catch this? He doesn't say, if you have faith, then God will let you into the holy place. If you have faith, then you can have your bodies washed with clean water. He says, since you've been brought into the holy places, place by the blood of Jesus Christ, since with your bodies being purified with this clean water, then come with full assurance. Then come with the faith. You, you, you can't bribe God with your faith. You can't bribe God with your grief over your own sin. I'm sorrowful for my sins, and now I'm trusting in God, and so now he's obligated to save me. No, he saves us, and that creates the faith. It's the word of God that creates the faith. It's the bread and wine of Holy Communion that create the faith. I've been there. I've, tried, I've, I've been angry with God because I did X, Y, and Z for him, and then he, he, he let me down. That's not faith at all. This is trying to bribe God, trying to put God into my debt. And if you think about the Exodus or the Last Supper, how does it work? Who is saved in the Exodus? Think about this thought experiment for a second. Which of the Israelites are saved in the story of the Exodus? The ones who really deeply believe in God. The ones who've given their life over the, to the future Passover lamb who's to come. The ones who deeply understand his word. The ones who are truly repentant. No, you know who gets saved? If you're in the house, you get saved. The, 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 God, doesn't walk, God doesn't come by the houses and look at the houses and say, do the people in here, are they really truly sincere in their faith? No, he looks at the blood on the side of the house. That's who's in. At the Last Supper, who's in? Who gets saved in the Last Supper? Are, are those really great giants of faith at the Last Supper? No. They're, all, they're about to abandon Jesus. But every single one of them gets saved. Why? Because they're at the Last Supper with him, except for the guy who fails on the Last Supper to betray Jesus. Other than that, it was not a question of like, who here is the most loyal follower? The question was, is who here has received the waters of baptism? Who here has received my body and blood? Who here has received my word in such a way that you are connected to Jesus? At the end of the day, that's what there, there's no more, there's no more offering for sin. You can't, your faith is not an offering for sin. God saves us by faith, but the faith happens because God saves us. And to close off one last, just to read this one more time. He will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The offering has been made. And now because of Jesus' death on the cross, we are right with God. And when we come to the rail, he takes that death of Jesus. He doesn't re-sacrifice Jesus, but he takes the death of Jesus and he applies it to us spiritually, physically, all of Jesus for all of us. Amen.
stand for prayer. Let's pray. Father, you don't desire the death of sinners, but rather that we turn from our rebellion and live. We come before you tonight, and although we've sinned and deserve only your punishment, yet we run to your mercy in Christ Jesus, our Lord, who gave his body and his blood for our redemption. Lord, allow us to always believe this and never waver. Grant that in this faith we may worthily come to your altar to eat the very body and drink the true blood which your Son has given for our redemption. In thanksgiving we remember and proclaim the sufferings and death of our Lord Jesus Christ in whom we place our trust and until his return graciously receive our prayers. Deliver and preserve us. For to you alone we give all glory, honor, and worship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, O Lord our God, King of all creation. For you've had mercy on us and given your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Grant us your spirit, gracious Father, that we may give heed to the testament of your Son in true faith. And above all, firmly take to heart the words with which Christ gives to us his body and blood for our forgiveness. By your grace, lead us to remember and give thanks for the boundless love which he manifested to us, when by pouring out his precious blood he saved us from your righteous wrath and from sin, death, and hell. Grant that we may receive the bread and wine, that is, his body and blood as a gift, guarantee, and pledge of his salvation. Graciously receive our prayers, deliver and preserve us. To you alone, O Father, be all glory, honor, and worship with the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray in Jesus' name the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated. Oh, 
Now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen.
Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Go in peace.